I'd invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me, if you will, to the book of Romans, chapter 8. We continue our study through this chapter together, chapter 8, and we come to this morning, verses 28 to 30. While you're turning there, if you'd pray with me for a moment. Father, we come now to your word. We come to, Lord, these pages that have been written by the very Spirit of God, breathed out, inspired, without error, true in all it says, the revelation of our God. So we ask, Lord, that by your Spirit you would Illumine your word, you would open our eyes and our hearts that what Paul prayed for the Ephesians would be true, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened so that we might grasp the beauty and the glory and the love and the mercy and the power of our God. May Christ be exalted for your glory and for our everlasting good, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we come this morning to a a very well-known, very loved passage of Scripture. In fact, it's, it's a passage that contains, I think, one of the greatest and perhaps most comforting promises in all of the Bible. Chapter 8, verse 28, Paul says that for those who love God, all things work together for good. No doubt, I think many of you have perhaps memorize that, you've quoted it often, perhaps it's even become like a life verse for you. And for others, it's a glorious promise I know that has strengthened many and sustained you through times of suffering, through difficulty, through some of the darkest, deepest valleys of your life. And yet at the same time, this very same passage, specifically verses 29 and 30, They can also be quite controversial, can't they? They tend to divide people. They've divided churches. They've divided entire entire denominations. It's it's really sort of a a theological lightning rod, so to speak. I mean, you you just bring up words like foreknowledge. You bring up words like predestination, and you just watch as sparks fly into endless debates and heated arguments and lines are drawn in the sand and tribes are formed and are you an Arminian, are you a Calvinist, right? And so, these, needless to say, these verses, they can be quite controversial. And here's what's so incredibly sad about that. Here's the tragedy. Is that we have turned a text that God intends for our comfort into a text of controversy. We have turned a text that God intends for your comfort into a text of controversy. Friends, these verses, they are intended, they are designed, they are purposed by God to be a source of great comfort for you. They aren't intended to be a topic simply of academic theological debate. No, they're meant to encourage you. And specifically, they're meant to encourage you in the midst of your suffering. Let's not forget that the entire context here of these verses, all the way from verse 17, really to the end of the chapter, is one of suffering. And yet there are many who have made these verses to be something controversial. And by doing so, what they have done is they have gutted these verses of their theological significance. 
They have robbed these verses of their intended effect because verses 28 to 30, they are meant to comfort you, Christian. They're meant to help you. They're meant to serve as a theological anchor for your soul in storms and trials and the sufferings of life. How so? Well, here's how. Because these verses this morning, they are about the absolute sovereignty of God. They are about the absolute sovereignty of God. Paul is going to stretch here all the way back to eternity past. And then at the same time, he's going to stretch all the way into eternity future. And he does so this morning in order to give you confidence that the sovereign God is the one who is orchestrating every event, every circumstance, every detail of your life. And he has also planned from all of eternity past to save you. And he will get you there. And so they're meant to be a refuge. They're meant to be a source of security and strength and hope in times of suffering. They're not meant to be debated. They're meant to be treasured. The great London pastor Charles Spurgeon, he once said, when you go through a trial, it is the sovereignty of God that is the pillow upon which you lay your head. And that's what Paul knows to be true. And so I pray that these verses this morning would be that for you. Let's read them together. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 28. I invite you to stand with me as we read these verses, if you're able. Beginning in verse 28, the Apostle Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called Those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Last week I told you that verses 18 to 30, they serve for us as three helps, three encouragements, three supports that the Apostle Paul gives us in order to encourage suffering Christians. And and these encouragements, I told you, are are based on what he said, if you look back in verse 17, that namely, we must suffer. Look there, verse 17, the Apostle Paul says, If children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. So suffering, notice, precedes glory. That when God saves you, He doesn't simply pull you out of all suffering, or all difficulty, or all trials. No, rather, He tells us here that we will suffer in this life, because we live in a world that is groaning under the effects of sin. We live in a world that has been ravaged by sin, and disease, and destruction, and decay, and death. And that even though there is an already aspect to our salvation that we have been saved, We have been forgiven, we have been reconciled, we have been justified. At the same time, there is also a not yet aspect of this salvation as well, when we will be fully and finally glorified. And so Paul gives us your three helps to encourage us in the midst of suffering. 
Help number one we saw back, if you remember, in verses 18 to 25, where in verse 18, Paul, if you remember, he contrasts this present suffering of our lives now with this future glory that's coming. And he says that our suffering now, it is nothing compared to the eternal glory awaiting us. Verse 18, notice, it's not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. That, that glory awaits you, Christian, and this glory, it, it will be dust on the scales, or excuse me, your suffering will be dust on the scales compared to this coming glory. So he wants to encourage you by fixing your eyes on glory. Help number two came last week. Verses 26 and 27, where if you remember, we saw that God also helps us in our suffering. He helps us in our weakness by making us aware of the intercessory work of the Spirit in our lives. That God is praying to God that the will of God would be accomplished in your life. And so the Spirit, he's been given to us in order to help us in our Weakness, when we don't know what to pray, when we don't know how to pray, when we can't even seem to pray, that the Spirit, he he takes these, these wordless, aching groanings and he communicates those groanings perfectly to God according to his will for your life. And so, our prayers, they are always asked and they are always answered according to the will of God. It's amazing. But this morning, in verses 28 to 30, Paul gives us one final help. One more encouragement he wants us to be sure of in the midst of our suffering. Look there again in verse 28. That in all things, Paul says, God is working together for our good. What an amazing promise. I mean, that is... That is a massively sweeping promise, isn't it? That is a glorious promise to rest your heads on. That all of the sorrows, all of the pains, all of the disappointments, all of the difficulties, all of the losses that we experience in this life, they will ultimately, Paul says, work together for our good. Now we could stop right there. And that would be enough, wouldn't it? I mean, that, that, that promise alone is help enough, isn't it? But he doesn't. In fact, notice because then in verses 29 and 30, he goes on then to provide support for that promise. He provides a foundation for that promise that he's just made in verse 28. There, notice in verse Beginning in verse 29, it begins with that word for, that, that's linking together, notice, verses 28 and 29. So, in other words, verses 29 to 30, they hold up, they support, they strengthen the massive promise of verse 28. In fact, they guarantee this promise. How can Paul make a promise like that in verse 28? Only because of verses 29 and 30. So I want to look at these verses with you this morning under three headings. In verse 28, we're going to see the promise. What is this promise? What does it mean? What does it not mean? Second, verse 28, we're going to look at the recipients of this promise. Who is this promise for? And then finally, in verses 29 and 30, we're going to look at the foundation of the promise. And we're going to examine those five verbs that Paul links together there to give support and guarantee this promise. 
So first, I want you to notice with me the promise. The promise, verse 28. Look there again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who have been called according to His purpose. Now, other translations are are slightly different here because of the Greek wording of this particular verse. So, for example, the New American Standard translates verse 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. So, the New American Standard takes God as the subject here and all things as the direct object, whereas the ESV takes all things as the subject. In fact, the word God actually isn't in the Greek. The New American Standard just provided that for you to help you understand the verse. The NIV translates it, and we know that in all things God works together for the good. So they're all slightly different, but really they're all saying the same thing, aren't they? And here's what they're all saying. They're all saying this, that underlying every event, every circumstance of your life is not that just all things will work out for you in the end. It's not just that time will heal all wounds. It's not just that things have a way of working themselves out. No, what underlies every event and circumstance of your life is the absolute sovereign God who is guiding and directing and providentially working in order to turn all things for your good. That's the promise. God is behind all things. God is working in all things. God is causing all things for your good. And in verse 28, this is something, Christian, that Paul wants you to know. He wants you to be sure of. In fact, look at verse 28. And we know. Now, why does he say that? Do you think, have you ever thought about that? Why does he say that? And we know. Well, I think it's because, as we saw last week, there are things we don't know. Right? I mean, look back at verse 26. We don't know what to pray for, as we ought. There are things that we don't know. We don't always know God's will. He hasn't revealed it to us in every circumstance and in every situation, has he? We are weak. We are ignorant. There are so many things about the will of God that we don't know as we look around this broken world. But, verse 28, there is something that we do know. There is something that we know for sure. Here's a promise we can know. Here's a promise we can hold on to. That all things, Paul says, will work together for our good. Notice a couple of things about this promise. Number one, look there, that this promise, Paul says, it concerns all things. It's about all things. In verse 28, it's interesting that the Greek word there, all things, panta, you know what it literally means? Here's what it means. All things. I know. Everything. Not just some things. Not just most things. All things. It is utterly comprehensive. There are no qualifications. There are no limits. There are no asterisks here. It includes 
everything that comes into your life, everything that touches your life. Nothing is outside of the scope of this promise of all things. And specifically, Paul has in mind here not just good things, all things. In fact, specifically, he has in mind here bad things. Suffering, hardship, evil, pain, sin. These are the all things of verse 28. How do we know that? Well, remember what I said. The context here is is one of suffering, isn't it? In fact, suffering bookends this promise here of verse 28. Look there, notice back, verse 18, the sufferings of this present time. Verse 20, creation along with us, Paul says, is subjected to futility. And as a result, creation is groaning, verse 22. We are groaning, verse 23. And then notice the other end of the bookend in verse 35 where Paul will say to us, as we'll see, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Beloved, these are the all things. Meaning that everything that comes against you, every enemy, every painful loss, every demonic assault, Every bout with sickness and disease and cancer, every injury, everything that happens to you, every betrayal, every crisis, every disappointment, every disaster, every persecution, every rejection, everything that's meant to harm you, these are the all things Paul is describing here. And right smack dab in the middle of all of this suffering and all this futility and all of this groaning and all of this tribulation is verse 28. This glorious promise that all of these things are working together for your good. And listen, listen, these all things, they would even include your sin. Yes, while sin is always bad and its consequences are always real, And we are always responsible for our sin at the same time. Listen, God is so good. He is so great. He is so sovereign. He is so wise that he can even weave our own sinning and the sins of others into our lives for our good. Think of Joseph. Joseph, sold into slavery by his brothers. And in doing so, elevated to a position of authority in the kingdom of where he could save his family. And Joseph says in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Acts chapter four, verses 27 and 28, Peter says about the death of Jesus, the worst act of evil, the worst sin in human history. Acts 24, verse, or 4, verse 27, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In other words, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And so listen, God will ordain things that grieve him in order to bring good out of them. 
God will ordain things that grieve him in order to bring good out of them. Now, let's be very clear that this this doesn't mean that God is some kind of master chess player. Lincoln and I like playing chess. In fact, we played a life-size game of chess the other day. It was amazing. And I make a move, and oftentimes he makes a better move, right? And he beats me almost every time. It's amazing. This isn't some kind of cosmic chess game. Where the devil makes a move, and then God makes a better move. Ah, let's see. Let's see how I can take this, and let's see how I can turn it. Let's see how I can use it for their good. No. God is far more sovereign than that. This good isn't simply his reaction to these things. Hear this. It is according to his eternal sovereign will. It's not his reaction to these things. It is according to his eternal sovereign will. Ephesians 1.11 says it like this. He who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He has willed them to happen for your good. Which leads to the second thing about this promise that we see. This promise concerns not only all things. This promise concerns, verse 28, our good. Our good. Verse 28. What does Paul mean by good? Verse 28, all things work together for good. What is the good that Paul has in mind here? Because you and I, we, we, we can't, it can't just be left up to us to define good for ourselves, can we? And so we need to define what good is here. And listen, it, it's, it's not as the world defines good, It's not even what you and I might define as good. Doug Moo says in his commentary that we must be careful to define good in God's terms, not ours. So what's the good? Here's why. Because, you see, it can be so easy to read verse 28 with our comfortable American Western eyes. Can it? That for my good is what brings me the most comfort. It's what brings me the most ease. It's what brings me the most success, that God is going to give me the life that I've always dreamed of, right? I mean, do you hear that today anywhere else? But listen, that's coffee mug Christianity. It's not biblical Christianity. It's coffee mug Christianity. Here's what I mean. You see verse 28 slapped on a coffee mug. There's there's nothing wrong with that. It's okay. But what you don't often see slapped on a coffee mug is verse 36, where Paul says, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Why? Well, because we have our own ideas of what good might be. And that's not God's idea of what good is. So what is it? What is the good for which he is working all things together in our lives? What is the good? Are there any clues here? Yes, there are. Because these things, they're not good in themselves, are they? No. Cancer isn't good. Death isn't good. Persecution isn't good. So how are they good? Look there, verse 28. Notice that second parallel phrase. Verse 28. 
for those who are called according to His purpose. So God has a good purpose in the all things. What's His good purpose? We'll keep reading. Verse 29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. For what? What's the good purpose? Verse 29. To be conformed to the image of His Son. There it is. That's the good. That's the good. That's the good that God intends to bring about in your life, Christian, that you would be conformed into the image of His Son, that you would look more and more and more like Jesus in ever-growing, ever-increasing measure. Or verse 30, notice the good is our glorification. Look there, verse 30. That those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So what's the good? The good that Paul describes is our eternal glory. So listen, everything in the life of the child of God, everything that has come into your life, everything that is in your life now, and everything that will come into your life serves your conformity to Christ and getting you, Christian, to glory. God is determined to make you like his son, and so he providentially determines that all things to work to that end. Do you believe that? Again, Spurgeon said this. Write this down. Somewhere you can read it every day. (laughs) He said this. Had any other condition been better for you, more for your good than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. Had any condition, any other condition been better for you, more for your good than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. Do you believe that? So this is the promise. Now, now I want to briefly just mention Point number two, and I won't, I won't stay here long, but point number two, I want you to see the recipients of this promise. Verse 28, who, who is this promise for? Who gets the promise of verse 28 that all things work together for their good? Because notice, this, this isn't a universal promise, is it? No, in fact, it, it's actually, it's an exclusive promise. Only certain people get this promise. Yes, it's all things. However, the all things isn't for all. So who's this promise for? Well, in verse 28, notice Paul, he he describes the recipients of this promise in two ways. There, There are two things that must be true of you for this promise to apply to you. And Paul describes the recipients of this promise both subjectively and objectively. Subjectively and objectively. Look there at verse 28. Subjectively, he says, they love God. It's what they do toward God. But objectively, they notice they've been called. This is what God did to them. So they, they're loved. Or they love God and they're called. 
That's who this promise is for. First notice, the promise is for those who love God. Look there, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. So this promise, notice, is for lovers of God. Now, isn't it interesting here that Paul focuses on love? He doesn't say those who obey God, those who fear God, those who trust God, those who have faith in God. What does he say? He says those who love God. Why? Because that's what a Christian is. A Christian is somebody who loves God. Listen, I think it is an utter tragedy that we have neglected and failed to include a love for God as an essential, necessary component of saving faith. To where we have turned salvation into merely an assent to certain doctrinal truths. We have turned salvation merely into agreeing with a set of theological facts that salvation has become simply something that we do with our minds when no, in reality, saving faith is loving God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Love delights in God. Love treasures God and cherishes God and is being satisfied in God. So let me ask you this morning, do you love God? I mean, do you love him? Teenagers, do you love God? Because if you don't, you're not a Christian. But if you do, this promise is for you. Now, if you're anything like me, that subjective description there of who this promise is for, that they they love God, right? It's a bit unnerving to me. Now, why? Well, because, like I said, if you're like me, oftentimes my love is cold, flimsy, fickle, ebbs and flows. Does yours? Your love for God? So then, is this promise that God is working all things together for my good only true of me if my love is hot? Because if that's true, if that promise depends on me, I'm in big trouble. (laughs) And thank God for the rest of verse 28. Because notice what he goes on to say. This promise is also for those, not only who love God, this promise is for those who are called by God. Called by God. Verse 28. For those who are called according to his purpose. And We'll also see the same calling, notice down in verse 30 in a moment. This is the effectual call of God, where he says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. So this is the call of God, where God sovereignly calls you to saving faith. But note here that he supplements this qualification of loving God with our being called by God. Isn't that beautiful? So so in other words, Paul adds to the the subjective human side of this thing, our love for God, he adds here the objective divine side that God calls you. He's the one that calls you. In fact, fact, we could say that it's this divine calling that actually, in essence, serves my ability to even love God. You see that? So if you have any love for God in your heart, Christian, it's because God's called you. 
And if he hadn't called me, I wouldn't love him. He loved, we love because he first loved us. And it reminds me, listen, that the fulfillment of this promise in verse 28, that all things are working for my good, it doesn't depend on me. It doesn't depend on me. It depends rather on the sovereign God who called me. Which before we move to the third point, let me just say this. Because it needs to be said for a room this size this morning. That if you don't love God, and if you haven't been called by God, if, if you've never responded to Jesus Christ in repentance and saving faith, then you can't claim verse 28. This promise is only for Christians, and, and it means that all things will not work out for your good. In fact, you could read it like this. If you don't love God, and if you aren't called by God, then all things are not working for your good, but rather for your destruction, for your harm. Oh, you may experience God's common grace. You may experience some good things, but you're on the pathway to eternal destruction. And Romans chapter 2, verse 5 says, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This promise is only for lovers of God, only for those who've been called by God. It's only for Christians. And so with this calling now in mind, it brings us to our final point. I want you to see the foundation of this promise in verses 29 and 30. The foundation. Verses 29 and 30, they're the grounding. They're the basis of verse 28. And so Paul, what he's going to do now is he's going to begin to lay the foundation for this promise that he's just given us in verse 28. And we know that because of, notice that word for at the beginning of verse 29, which is what? It's connecting us back to verse 28. So let's read these verses together, and I want you to see the connection there. Look there at verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29, for, because, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So in other words, how can Paul make this massively sweeping promise there in verse 28 that all things will work together for my good or for your good, Christian? Well, it's because verse 28 God has a purpose for you. God has a plan for you. And he's put this plan in place for you before the world began, in eternity past. It's a plan that's being worked out in your life right now, and it's a plan that will one day come to completion, and nothing can stop it, nothing can thwart it, nothing will keep this plan from happening in your life. It's good news. So what's the plan? Well, there, there are five parts here that Paul mentions to this plan. Some have called this the golden chain of salvation. So I want you to imagine this as, as, as five 
links in a, in a strong iron chain. That's the way to just visualize this. And so, before we look at these individual links of this chain here for a moment, let's, let's just first make a few observations about this chain. Observation number one. Notice, notice that this chain is God's doing. There are five active verbs here. And in each of them, God is the subject. He is the one doing the acting. He foreknows. He predestines. He calls. He justifies. He glorifies. What do we do? What's our part? Nothing. Right? We're completely passive here. And all, all of them. There are things happening here before you ever existed. This is God's doing. Observation number two, this chain, it has an order. There's a sequence here, right? In one sense, you could say it's chronological. Although, how do you count time before time began, right? So maybe sequential is more a way to describe it. But, but there's an order here, right? In, in how the gospel comes to us. Notice links number one and two, foreknowledge, predestination, they happened when? In eternity past. Links three and four, right? Calling, justification, when do those happen? They happen at the moment of your conversion, Christian. And then notice finally link number five, glorification, it still happened, it will happen, it's still yet to happen in the future, right? Verse 17, when we are glorified with him. So there's a logical order here, there's a necessary order here. I mean, one can't come before the other. Justification can't come before your calling. Glorification can't come before your justification. Observation number three. Notice, not all the links of this chain are mentioned here. Not all the links of the chain are mentioned here. You may have noticed there that there are some links that Paul left out. He doesn't say anything here about our, our conversion, our, our repentance and faith. Why? Well, that's God's work in us. We'll see in our calling to him. There's no talk here of our sanctification. Why? Well, Paul's been talking about sanctification the whole chapter, hasn't he? It's implied here. Derek Thomas, in his book, I think is right when he writes that Paul's point is not to provide us with a complete picture here. It is merely wishing to show us God's invincible purpose. This is God's invincible purpose. In other words, what God starts, he finishes. What he begins, he completes. That's the purpose of this chain. So, finally, observation number four, just notice that this chain here is unbreakable. It's unbreakable, meaning if, if, if you remove just one link of this chain, then the entire chain falls apart. You take away foreknowledge, you take away predestination, you have no calling. You take away justification, you have no glorification. It's all linked together. So let's define each of these five links in this chain. Let's see how they connect. And again, here's where it gets a little controversial. So remember, here's what you need to remember. God intends for this to comfort you. Look at these five glorious verbs. Link number one, look there. 
foreknowledge. Foreknowledge. Verse 29, John Murray, he says, Few questions have provoked more difference in interpretation than the meaning of God's foreknowledge. So what does it mean? What does it mean that God foreknew us? Well, that, that word there, foreknowledge, upon first glance, it would seem to indicate that some, this is something that God simply knew beforehand. Right? I mean, that's what the word looks like, right? So if you say forewarned, means what? You warned somebody ahead of time, right? Or foretold, you told something ahead of time, right? So foreknowledge, it would seem like it just means it's something you knew ahead of time. So someone suggests that God's foreknowledge means something that God, he knew in advance. That God foresees, right? Like, you've probably heard it described like this. Like, God, he looked down the corridors of time, right? And he sees who will believe in him by their, their own free choice, and then based on that knowledge, he decides then what's going to become of that person. But this word foreknowledge, it simply can't mean that. Let me give you three reasons why. Why it can't be that God simply sees something ahead of time. Here's three reasons why. Reason number one is because foreknowledge here is not about certain decisions people make. It's about certain persons. So it's not about certain decisions that autonomous human beings make. This foreknowledge is about certain persons. Look there, verse 29. Those whom he foreknew. We're talking about people here. We're talking about God foreknowing people, not just their actions. Not the actions of a person. Yes, God knows their actions. He's omniscient. He knows the end from the beginning. But that's not what Paul means. This text is about God foreknowing certain people. That's reason number one. Reason number two that foreknowledge can't simply mean God knows something ahead of time is because if God's foreknowledge is based on God foreseeing faith in me, then my actions become the basis of my relationship with God. But that's never the case in the Bible. Faith is always a gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. 2 Timothy 2, 25. Matthew 16, 17. Or look there at verse 28. We were called according to what? His purpose. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, He saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, like, like our foreseen faith in Him, but because of what? Because of His own purpose and grace, that God chose us. He foreknew us. He called us. He entered into a relationship with us, not because of any foreseen faith in us that we exercised, but only according to the purpose and counsel of His sovereign will third reason that foreknowledge can't simply mean something God knows ahead of time. It's because of that, what that word foreknow means. Foreknowledge is about more than simply some kind of intellectual knowledge. That's not what the word foreknowledge means. In fact, that word foreknow, to foreknow, it's actually a relational term. It means to know something in an intimate way. This is, this is a, a knowledge of relationship in, in intimacy, of love, 
Let me just tell you where we see this in the Bible. A couple of places. In Matthew, you can turn there if you want, you can listen. Matthew 7, 23. Jesus says, and, they will, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, of course, Jesus isn't saying, I never knew about you. Right? That's not what he's saying. What is he saying? He's not saying, I, I, I never knew who you were. He's saying, I, I never knew you in a saving way. I never had a relationship with you. It's a relational term. Let me give you an Old Testament one. Another New Testament one would be Romans 11.2. You can go read that. An Old Testament one. Same word in the, in the Septuagint. Amos chapter 3, verse 2. Speaking of Israel, God says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Of course, God had knowledge of all the families on the earth. That's not what he means. He's saying, I only knew you in a relational way. Psalm 1.6 says, The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Well, of course he knows the way of the wicked too. He's saying he loves the way of the righteous. That's what it means to know. He loves. And so I agree with both John Murray, John Stott, and their commentaries when they say that foreknow is actually synonymous with forelove. To foreknow is to forelove. John Stott says, foreknowledge is God's sovereignly distinguishing love. Here's what it means. Here's what it means, Christian. It means that before you ever existed, God set his love on you. He foreknew you. Before you had ever done anything, he turned his attention toward you. He set his favor on you. And thus God's foreknowledge is also synonymous with God's election. He chose to save you. He chose to set his favor on you and therefore his love has nothing to do with you. He chose you because he chose you. (laughs) And this love, it stretches all the way back, Paul says, to eternity past. And as we'll see in a moment, all the way to eternity future as well. And because he foreknew you, notice the next link in the chain, verse 29, he also predestined you. Link number two, predestination. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled on this word. Probably a lot of blood, too. (laughs) Predestination, what does it mean? It's, It's amazing to me to hear so many Christians say, I don't believe in predestination. Predestination isn't biblical. And my response is, it's in the Bible. Like, not just the idea of it, the actual word itself is in the Bible. Ephesians 1.5, in him we have obtained an inheritance, 1.5, he predestined us for adoption. Ephesians 1.11, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So we have to deal with the word, it's a biblical word, right? So what does it mean? Well, that verb there, to predestine, it means to, it means to mark out. It means to appoint, it means to determine. And the prefix pre means ahead of time, right? Before time, beforehand. So to predestine means to predetermine. Means to predetermine, meaning that God in eternity past, he decided and he ordained ahead of time 
the destiny of those whom he foreknew, whom he chose. Verse 29, look there again. Those whom he foreknew, what? He also predestined. So see the link? You got to see the link there. So if foreknowledge means God chose to set his love upon us, then predestination means he has predetermined now our destiny. And what's our destiny? Look there, verse 29. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. For what, Paul? To be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So notice, notice what Paul says here. That God chose and he predestined you, Christian. Why? Well, first he says to be conformed to the image of his Son. His destiny for you is that you would look more and more like Jesus in order to glorify you with Jesus. That's your destiny. And the second thing he says is in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, what he means here is that God has planned to have for himself a people, a family, with Jesus, our brother, at the head. And he wants all of the family to look like Jesus. That's your destiny, brothers and sisters. And so all things then are working together toward that destiny, that end in your life. They're working for your good to make you look more like him. That's what he predestined you for. And because he foreknew you, because he predestined you, notice also the third link. He called you. Verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. So link number three. Notice this is the call. You could say it's the effectual call. Verse 30, this call here, it's the Bible's explanation for why you're a Christian. This is why you're a Christian. He called you. So we move now, notice, from eternity past to when? The present. And this happens, Christian, at the moment of your conversion. He called you. And we've already seen that word call. When we look back in verse 28, those called according to his purpose. So what does it mean? What is this call? Well, we need to distinguish here between two types of calling in the Bible. There's two kinds of calling. The first one you would call the general call. This is the gospel call. You could say. This is the the general general outward call of the gospel that that goes out to everyone. This is what I'm doing right now as I'm preaching, as I'm proclaiming the gospel of of Christ, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel call. That's the, the general call. And this is the call that reaches the ears. Right? And for some, that's as far as it goes. They hear it, and it goes no further than the ear. Matthew 22, verse 14 says, Many are called, few are chosen. But then, second, there's the effectual call. Notice it, same thing in verse 28 and in verse 30. This is the the personal, inward call of God himself that reaches, it goes beyond the ears, and it reaches your very heart. It reaches your heart. That when, When the gospel is preached, God sovereignly, effectually calls the sinner into a relationship with himself. 
Let me show you a place where we see both of these. Hold your place there in Romans 8. Flip over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 for a moment. 1 Corinthians 1, look at verse 23, where Paul says, But we preach Christ crucified. That's the general call. It's the gospel call. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. That's the effectual call. We preach Christ, general call, but to those who are called, effectually, to him, Christ is power. Christ is wisdom. We see it. We've been called. And Christian, listen, this is exactly what took place in your heart at the moment of your conversion. You were dead in your sin. You were blinded to the truth of the gospel. You were unable to respond to the gospel call. And then in a sheer act of God's sovereign grace, through the preaching of the gospel, he summoned you to himself. This isn't a call. This is a summons. (laughs) This is the summons of the king. This is like Jesus calling Lazarus out of the tomb. Come forth. And he came. And you heard the gospel. And I mean you really heard it. You really heard it right here. And it penetrated your heart and you responded in faith. And you came running irresistibly to Jesus. 1 Peter 2.9 says he called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 to 6, Paul says this. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then in verse 6, he says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The God, just as God spoke light into existence and there was light, he spoke light into your heart and you saw and you were called and you came. Acts chapter 16, Paul's preaching and there's one woman there, Lydia. And it says in Acts 16 verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. He called her, he drew her to faith, and you were no different, friend. God, at a moment in your life, sovereignly called you to himself, and you came. That's the call, which leads to the next link in the chain. Notice the middle of verse 30. It's link number four. It's justification. Verse 30, justification. And those whom he called, he also justified. So this is, this is justification. This is, this is being declared righteous. Right? We've been looking at this in Romans 8. This is being put in right standing with God. Not guilty, no condemnation, based only on the finished work of Christ. And notice, Paul says, everyone whom God calls, he justifies. And so, if, if faith is the instrument of God by which we're justified, right? Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, if faith is the instrument by which we're justified, 
and everyone who gets called is justified, then that calling, it always results in faith. Always. This calling creates the faith that actually justifies the sinner. And not everyone gets justified. Not everyone gets justified, and thus, not everyone experiences this call. This kind of effectual calling where God actually gives what He requires. And so if you're a Christian in the room this morning, not only have you been foreknown, not have you been predestined and called, you've been justified in Christ. Last link in the chain. One day, you will be glorified. Verse 30, those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. Those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, what? He also glorified. That's the last link. He glorified you. Glorification, verse 30. Notice, Paul, he jumps here now from God's present work to where? Eternity future. And really all I want you to notice about this, because we talked about this in Romans 8, haven't we? Glorification. Here's what I want you to notice. Just notice the tense of that verb there. Verse 30. He also glorified. Not he will glorify. He glorified. It's past tense. Why? Right? I mean, isn't this future? Why is he talking like it's already happened? Doug Moo comments, he says, Paul is looking at the believer's glorification from the standpoint of God who has already decided that it should take place. While not yet experienced, the issue has been settled. That even though it's a future event, Paul says, it's a certain event. You can count on it. You, you can take it to the bank. This is eternal security. Eternal security, friends. Everyone who gets justified gets glorified. Nobody falls out. Nobody falls through the cracks. Do you see the rock-solid foundation of this promise? This is the unbroken chain that all things will work together for your good. This is God's plan from eternity past to eternity future for your good. And it will not fail. It cannot fail. Nobody drops out. No one will be lost. He will hold us fast. Well, I'm over time. Let me just give you some quick points of application. I'll be done. Very quick. Point number one. The question for you this morning is not, have I been chosen? The question for you is not, did God predestine me? How can I know? That's not the question. The question is, has God called you? Has he given you eyes to see Jesus as beautiful and glorious? If you come to me and you say, Pastor, I'm struggling with whether or not I'm a Christian. How can I know if I'm chosen? Here's what I'm going to say to you. How can I know if I'm one of the elect? Here's what I'm going to say to you. Do you love God? Do you love Him? Do you treasure Him? Do you see Jesus as beautiful? And so for some here this morning, let me ask, is God calling you? Maybe He's calling you this morning. Your eyes have been opened. You see. And what you didn't see. Will you believe on him? 
That's the question. Application number two, your salvation is owing completely to God. (laughs) That doesn't sound like an application. Your salvation is owing completely to God. You added nothing to this. You contributed nothing to this. We are debtors to sovereign grace. We, here's the application, we can't claim any superiority over anyone. We can't look down on anyone. The only difference between us and a lost world is sovereign grace. And so here's the application. This should produce no proud, arrogant Calvinists. You should be the most humble, generous, gentle people on the planet. And yet what often characterizes many is arrogance. I mean, you see it, you see it often in Christians. When you, when you come to an understanding of the doctrines of grace, this sort of reformed soteriology, here's what often happens. You go through what we call the cage stage. The cage stage, where you're just ready to fight and argue with anybody about this. This was me in college. I was a jerk. But when you truly understand that your salvation is owing completely to God, it makes you the most humble person on the planet. I had nothing to do with this. Third application. You didn't awaken God's love, and therefore you cannot weaken God's love. You didn't awaken God's love for you, and therefore you can't weaken God's love for you. God has always known the absolute worst about you. From all of eternity. And he still chose yet to set his love on you. He said, you're mine. And he will never discover anything about you that would somehow change his love for you. Do you realize that? You see, we often live in that kind of fear in our human relationships, don't we? Like, if they really knew me, if they really saw me, if they really knew the true me, they wouldn't love me. Not so with God. His choosing of us, his eternal divine love that set us apart, it's based on nothing we've done. That should make you confident. That should make you secure. And here's the last one. Last application. This passage reminds us that nothing can frustrate God's eternal purpose to work good in every circumstance of your life. This passage should remind us that nothing can frustrate God's eternal purpose to work good in every circumstance of your life. This is why Paul wrote verses 28 to 30. This is why. This is how you can be certain that God will work all of these things together for your good. He's for you. He's not against you. And he will make everything in your life bend toward his sovereign will for you. He is committed to you. And nothing, nothing that God deems necessary for your life will he withhold from you.
So I end with this quote again from Spurgeon. Had any other condition been better for you, more for your good than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. Let's pray. Lord, what a weighty passage. And you could spend weeks preaching each of those five things. It's caused us to think. Maybe our, our brains hurt this morning. And yet, Lord, you have intended these verses to bring comfort to your people, to bring security to your people. And so, Lord, I pray for this congregation in the midst of whatever sufferings, whatever trials, whatever circumstances of life in which they find themselves, Lord, that they would be reminded of your unstoppable love. That not only did you set your love on them in eternity past, not only did you love them when you called them to Jesus at the moment of salvation, justifying them by grace alone, but you will love them on into eternity when you glorify us with the Son. That you will hold us fast. That we are in your hands. And so may you receive all the glory as our sovereign, good, loving, and wise God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's worship. When I fear my faith will fail Christ will hold me fast.